Hey, y'all, welcome to the Common Good Podcast. I am so excited about this conversation today with Rachel Lazar. Rachel, uh, you and I had the privilege of meeting at an event where we were talking about how we think about Christian nationalism, the threat of Christian nationalism in the United States. I was so thrilled to uh, talk with you about what um, Americans United for the Separation of Church and State are doing, because I think it's really great work. And frankly, in the world that I come from of religious leaders, and especially evangelical religious leaders and even progressive uh, evangelical leaders like me, um, don't always have a lot of access to the people who are thinking a lot about the role of religion in the United States. And that's what Americans United for the Separation of Church and State have been doing for doing for a really long time. So um, thanks for being willing to chat with us about it today. Thank you for having me on. It's always a pleasure talking with you. I'm so glad that we have crossed paths. Yeah. All right. So uh, people that don't know about the 75-year history of Americans United for the Separation of Church and State, uh, tell us a little bit about the organization and how it fits into this longer story that we're trying to figure out in, in the United States about what role religion should play. Not, not so much in individual people's lives, and we'll talk about this more, but in our public discourse and in our public policy and in our, in our laws and in our court systems. Uh, yeah. so, so tell us, tell us what you all do. So Americans United has been around for 75 years. And for 75 years, we've been bringing together religious and non-religious people to fight in the courts, in Congress, across state legislatures, and in the public square for everyone's right to believe as they choose, so long as they don't harm others. Hmm. Another way we put what we're doing is we fight for everyone's right to live as themselves and believe as they choose. And today we are fighting a relentless battle against those who want to grant favor to one narrow religious view over every other and over non-religion. And that is antithetical to the American experiment. It's threatening to the American democracy, and it is a violation of religious freedom for all. And and obviously, 75 years ago, people thought this was important enough to form uh, an organization to to do all the good work that you do, advocacy work and and court work and policy work and all. Um, but frankly, th this has been an argument that has needed to be made in the United States experiment since its founding and even before, right? Like this is this is as Amer the conversation about the role that religion should play and if some religious tradition should be given special favor or some should be limited, either of those. That's as American as it comes, isn't it? Like it's it's been part of the fabric of this country. It has been. I mean, it's part of the DNA of the American experiment. And without it, America wouldn't be America. Another thing, I'll, a point I want to make, Doug, is a lot of people have come to associate church-state separation with somehow being anti-religion or anti-Christian. And I hesitated when the headhunter came to me and asked me to, you know, hey, we think you'd be interesting for this job. I hesitated for a moment because I'm the first Jewish leader of the group and it's 75 years. The group had previously been run only by Christian leaders. And I'll tell you, as a religious minority, it gave me great comfort that there was a, you know, someone from the religious ma majority who was out there arguing for my right to believe as I choose and my family's right to have equal access in our society. That was comforting. So, you know, it took me a minute. And, you know, the reason that I accepted is because 
some of my favorite work is working in the interfaith community and working across mm -hmm. differences, working across divides. Coming back to the point about church-state separation not being anti-religion and not being anti-Christian, it's everything but that. It's what protects religion from government interference. And that's what our founders were so aware of and why they put it in the first 16 words of our First Amendment, of our Constitution. One more point on this religion, sort of mm -hmm. like religious underpinnings even of church-state separation. Our founders at Americans United were primarily Christians. They were religious leaders. They were primarily Methodist pastors in Chicago, my hometown, but they were also um, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, Seventh-day Adventists, seminary deans, uh, actually some public school advocates, but primarily people across theological and even ideological differences, but who cared deeply about religion. And I think it's really important to make that point so that we cannot afford to alienate people who care about religion, right? Because America is a very religious country. Lots of scholars say that's because of church-state separation, because yeah. it enables religion to thrive and we cannot afford to alienate. Everyone who cares about their religious identity should be coming towards Americans United for separation of church and state. So what was happening 75 years ago that caused this group of religious leaders and, and organizers and educators to need to create uh, an Americans United for the Separation of Church and State? What, what was happening then? Because this can feel like a very current situation to people, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. and then maybe they jump back to the founding of the country and think it was a big deal then. But there was something particular happening in the United States 75 and 80, 85 years ago that really called for the need for this organization to exist? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting, right? Because there are, there are pluses and minuses to, to our foundings. And I think in Americans United, there was concern about the place of the Catholic Church in our government. And that, you know, the Vatican was uh, assuming more and more power. And there were some questions about kind of its intermingling with the government. Um, this obviously preceded JFK running for president, where of course he had to give his bona fides as the first Catholic, you know, that was going to be president. Um, and he did to a bunch of Houston pastors in a famous speech that everyone should Google and watch. It's, it's actually wonderful to see. Um, but I think that there was concern. There were, you know, things called captured schools where um, nuns were running public schools. And there was concern. Those, those were some of the first cases that Americans United brought. What's unfortunate is, you know, mislabeling Americans United in any way as being anti-Catholic because, of course, we are pro everyone being able to have their religious freedom. We are, and I just want to make another point about that. You know, you said, which I really appreciate, we're talking today about the role of religion in public in public discourse and in the government, right? We're not talking about private, the private role of religion. I think that's really a great distinction, Doug. But I want to go one step further and say, you know, we can comment about the role of religion in the public square, right? But there is not a wall of separation in the public square, and Americans United has never argued that there should be. So like when Dr. Martin Luther King talked about religion, you know, as part of his speeches and motivational speeches, that was beautiful. That was great. He just had the wisdom to universalize it, 
right after he sort of went with the Christian stuff and to make it accessible to all, it was actually more impactful. Where Americans United spends our time is making sure that the government doesn't favor yep. one religious view over another or religion over non-religion because that would interfere with the American promise of religious freedom for all. Yeah, that's really well said and and, and a good distinction that when someone like me says it's private versus public, I don't mean it's a secret or you only have to do it at home and you can't do it out in front of people. What I think matters, and like your work a lot in this area, is public to me means that it's publicly supported or it becomes the basis for public action, for the for the action of all of us. Our work at Vote Common Good is to motivate faith voters to make the common good their voting criteria. So I'm hopeful that people are motivated by whatever faith they hold. Christians like me, I want them to be motivated by their Christian faith to do good and to act in ways that are going to benefit others for the common good. That doesn't mean that the laws should be based on the things that motivate me as a voter, right? I, I've had the great privilege of being represented by Ilhan Omar as my as my representative, and I want her faith to call her to public service. And I don't want me to be wanting the laws to be based on my scriptural text or religious traditions, nor hers, that together we're both motivated to something, and then we join in creating a public demand and public response through our government, through our laws that don't give favor to either of our religious traditions and don't thwart either of our traditions. And frankly, that's just really hard to do. And so groups like yours, I think, are so important because these things are not easy. We don't know. These are not clear lines for people of where that line of your personal motivations and what drives you versus what should be a public demand put upon others. That's that's uh, That's been a difficult balancing act, not only in the United States, but frankly, all over the world. Just human beings have had a hard time knowing how to, how to do this. I really appreciate that. And I think, you know, the name of your cause, Common Good, and what you're driving towards is so important here because I think ultimately what we're talking about are power dynamics. We're talking about power dynamics and ultimately what we're talking about, there's this case coming up on Tuesday before the Supreme Court about an evangelical Christian who's a flexible part-time carrier for the Postal Service who wants to have Sundays off and forces co-workers in a four-person office who are also church-going Christians to cover his shifts. And so the question there isn't just about, well, what about Groff, this guy who wants his religion accommodated, right? Because if we just focused in on Groff, then we think, okay, case done, you know, we should really accommodate him. The point is there's other people in the equation. It's not just about Groff. And in this case, the facts show that his coworkers who are also church going Christians were so offended by him taking 24 Sundays off that they resigned, transferred, filed grievances, right? And so there's actual harm to other people. So if what we're about here in America is the common good, which is what I think our values really are. I mean, de Tocqueville said we loved equality in this country more than anything. Then we yeah. have to remember that it's when we start letting the government sort of grant favor to quote religion, we are at risk of them granting favor to some of us who have more power over those of us who have less power. 
Yeah, boy, and that is spot on and so, so hard to figure out. There, there's some adage, maybe, maybe you know it, I, I can't quite remember how it goes, but it's something, it's, it's more artistic than this, that when you're living in a, in a system of privilege, equality feels like a loss. So yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Do you know that phrase? I think it's, it's totally. It's and I'm, I'm not remembering the actual adage either. But the point is, like, right when you ask for equality, I mean, that's really what forgive the term because it it offends some. But fragility is meant to yeah. describe, which is when I'm just asking for equality, that feels to you sometimes like I'm taking something away from you. But I'm not. I'm just asking for to be treated the same. Yeah. And even though we've been in this experiment for whatever it is, 270 years as a nation and, and really hard work post-World War II, which had a whole narrative and an immigration narrative, as you brought up, about people from different religious traditions starting to influence the American uh, landscape. And we've been wrestling with it. Uh, we have been at it for a very long time. But frankly, in the United States, there has been a tendency to give greater privilege to the Christian story than to the other stories. You can think about why Sundays are a day when businesses are closed or the post office and federal offices are closed. Well, it's not closed for other people's religious traditions and, and weekly patterns. You know, Jewish communities are like, hey, we also have a Sabbath, by the way, uh, might even predate another Sabbath. Um, there has been a sense that Christianity is the norm that other traditions should have to accommodate to. So that adjustment that has had to go on, you know, from the Ten Commandments being put up in in public spaces and in courtrooms, or uh, the Bible being used as a book on which people make an oath. Like, there's just a lot of things that lead people to believe, hey, Christianity is kind of the default here. It's sort of the norm of which everything else is welcomed, but needs to first and foremost accommodate to the you know, to the, the big brother or big sister of, of religion in America, that first of all, that's not true. Religion, Christianity has not been, wasn't the defining organizing principle of the United States. Um, but in practice, for a lot of people, it kind of feels that way. Is, is, that, is that right? Like, is that something you, you're recognizing and we have to deal with? Or, or how, how do you take to a oh, description absolutely. like that? I, I, I think it's so well, well put, Doug. And I, again, like as a religious minority, it just, it feels so amazing to have someone from the majority and who's Christian and a Christian leader describing that, you know, and calling it out. And look, I mean, to a certain extent, I think it's very human to feel a loss when your privilege is being challenged. Like, I think that's not um, evil to feel, or I think it's human, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and I do think that like what we're asking is, not for uh, even conservative Christians, right? Not to count and not to count the same, but that they don't get to impose their religion yeah. on us because that would be taking away from our religious freedom. That's it, yeah. you know? And I, and I also wanted to cite one study that I think is really interesting that Adam Liptak from the New York Times has written about, I don't know if you've seen it, and I, I think it's being renewed now, but it's this Epstein-Posner study that shows that under the Roberts court, the court has been ruling over 80% of the time in support of religion, in religion cases, yeah. and it's almost always 
for mainstream Christians that they're ruling in support of. Whereas before, like under the Warren court, it was, I forget whether it's in the high 40% or low 50s, but a dramatic sea change. So again, you know, you asked, is that something that we're, you know, that we're seeing, Rachel, like this sort of default mm-hmm. to favoring? I think that what we're seeing really is a backlash against the progress that society is making at being mm-hmm. more inclusive. You know, Van Jones called it a white lash actually, mm. which I think explains another part of what we're witnessing, which is right. sort of the fact that white Christians, as our friend Dr. Robbie Jones tells us, right, that white Christians stopped being a majority in this country in 2014. And, you know, for white Christians, I would completely understand that that's a, a, a heavy thing. I mean, it's a real change. And we can, you know, sure, I'm sure many white Christians celebrate our diversity too, but there's just no doubt that again, I'm coming back to the fact that it's human, that when you are in a position of the majority, that when you're in a position of privilege and a position of power, it's a little scary to even it out and lose that privilege, even if it's advancing the common good and even when it's advancing our own humanity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, right on. Dan is, uh, producer Dan uh, has found that proper quote uh, says when you're accustomed to privilege equality feels like oppression that's that's succinct and oh. and much and much better said and look i'm not going to ask you to jump in on this because we do this on our podcast and i speak to our my own religious tradition saying this persecution narrative that is running in american christianity that somehow american christians are being held back by our government that that is a constant persecution narrative that does it belies the facts is not true and as a christian pastor i will say to those those fellow uh uh uh, adherents if it were that's actually the christian tradition i mean you, you don't get to go through easter in the christian story and then complain and bemoan about how your religion is persecuted. You don't get to tell the story of the early church's struggle with being a minority religion and the faith being alive and vibrant and then say, but we don't want any kind of struggle. So there is no decent argument for saying that Christianity is under assault and threat, even though that's talked about on a regular basis in the political spaces, especially of conservative uh, republicanism, that that this this thing is under threat. So. You're welcome to comment on that. I just feel the need to say that stuff all the time because it's it's been a long-term role. And I understand that if you and your role or you and your own you know, religious social location don't want to have to comment on telling Christians to stop whining about being persecuted because they're not, you, you don't need to. I'm glad to do that and to take that on. But it's no. really it's really unbecoming of the of the Christian tradition to be claiming this constantly and to be doing it in court cases after court case, um, not just on legal merits, but somehow on this this cultural narrative of what about us? No, thank you, Doug. Thank you for saying that. I mean, I want to I want to clarify one thing and, and I'll, I'll of course, like the Jew is the one to say this. But, um, you know, there are enormous numbers of Christians who are with us at Americans United for separation yeah. of church and state. And we have a faith advisory council and you can look it up on our website and it's majority Christian. And every day we have Christian denominations signing on to our briefs, bringing cases with us, signing on to letters to Congress. So 
one thing that I just want to clarify is how many Christians, just like our founders, are so supportive of the common good and of yeah. religious freedom for all. So that's one comment. The other comment that I'll say is this. Um, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg used to say, quote, your right to swing your fist ends at the tip of the other guy's nose. And, you know, I'll just say that when it comes to the government, that the government just cannot let some of us practice our religion in a way that causes others of us harm. I mean, A, yeah, that's just yeah. not gonna work in a society that's as diverse as ours. I mean, we're, we need a society where there's peace and where we can coexist as neighbors, right? Where we avoid the wars that literally break mm -hmm. out over religious favoritism, right? So that's, I mean, one reason. But the other reason is we do have this commitment in the first 16 words of our constitution to religious freedom for all. And if the government is letting you swing your fist into my nose, then that's actually asking me to bear the cost of your religion yep. and that's offending my religious freedom. Um, so there's there's really good reasons. So I understand that it feels persecuting if those are my religious beliefs, but I just wanted to explain again why when what yeah. you're asking for is the right to harm others. And let's just see. And sometimes, you know what, Doug? Sometimes when we're part of the majority group, we just don't even see the harm to others. Like I say this with a lot of love for you know, my brothers mm -hmm. and sisters out there. And you know, I know that it took me until I was in my 40s to realize that a lot of black people go to hotels that have shampoo in their stalls, you know, shower stalls, and the shampoo is for white people's hair. Yep. <laughs> and I never noticed yep. that because I'm white. So, you know, it just never even occurred to me. I mean, there are things that we don't see and ways that we instinctively grip onto our power or feel persecuted. And I think what's so important is that we, you know, we make our brothers and our sisters feel loved. I mean, look, there are some leaders in the religious extremist movement who I don't have love towards, but I think there's a lot of rank and file folks who are just having very natural human feelings and mm -hmm, are being mm -hmm. led into feeling persecuted for things that they haven't even kind of fully realized, you know, the dynamics behind. And, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I think that we have to stop letting fear guide us and we have to start letting love be the guide for our actions because that will actually be in line with the American democracy and our constitution. Hearty amen to that. The, um, one of the things that we're going to do together is Vote Common Good is one of the one of the sponsors, and I'm proud to attend the Summit for Religious Freedom, April 22nd to the 24th, which is an in-person event in DC and also an online event. So we're wanting people to to uh, know about that and to attend that, uh, especially virtually, to be a part of it. I think it's really great that it's called a summit for religious freedom. Normally, phrases like religious freedom and summits are um, making the other side of the argument here that like religious freedom really means that as a Christian person, you get to do what you want to do. And the government has no say in it, uh, no matter if that's baking a cake or having to work on a particular day or whatever. So these are terms that are often used by, you know, another side of the argument. So I'm really glad that there's a summit for religious freedom because what this summit is calling for is a context in which 
people can be free for religion and free from religion, which any decent religious person should want, it seems to me. Um, can you talk a bit about the summit and what's going on, why it's called that, um, what's what's going to happen, and, and invite you know people's participation in it? Absolutely. And first of all, I just wanted to say thank you so much. I mean, the minute I told you about the conference, your Common Good sponsored it. You asked to come. You signed up. You registered. Um, lobby day was full, but you asked, "Are you like? Are, did anyone drop out?" And actually, we had someone who what, couldn't participate. So you're lobbying and staying for that day, and it just very grateful for you um, and your organization. Um, yeah, we're so excited about it. I mean, we thought about the name really hard, you know, because religious freedom has sadly been so co-opted. I mean, mm -hmm. it is unreal. Do you realize that I had a class from Stanford visit me over their spring break a few years ago, and I focus grouped the word religious freedom, and I asked them, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? when you think of religious freedom and the group deliberated with each other and they unanimously came out with anti-LGBTQ. Yep. That's really sad. You know, that's really sad because religious freedom should be about freedom and equality, right? Those are the main values that undergird it, not discrimination. Um, no. So when we thought about what to name our summit, we thought we have got to reclaim religious right. freedom, you know, and we're going to do it through this conference. So we called it the Summit for Religious Freedom, and we wanted to make it a hub for the true religious mm. freedom movement, you know, and what that means, by the way, is it's a hub for all of us whose freedoms, who value, let me put it like this, who value the freedoms and the rights that are undergirded by church-state separation because yeah, church state yeah. separation is the true guarantee for religious freedom. A lot of people associate church state separation with just this sort of antiquated thing of like, you know, our founding fathers who unfortunately too many of us today, well, for, let me put it like this. Let me not say unfortunately for reasons that are very understandable, but it's still like our founding, you know, are a little alienated by even, you know, some of us, um, but really, you know, church-state separation is connected to so many elements of our daily lives. Like if you care about reproductive freedom and birth control and access to abortion, if you care about our LGBTQ brothers and sisters being treated equally, mm -hmm. if you care about thriving public schools, if you care about books being on the shelves of our public libraries, if you care about our public policy being guided by real science, like during a pandemic, um, you know, say, yeah. um, and if you care about our democracy, then you actually care about church state separation. So this conference is bringing together all of these different communities in partnership, owning this conference together, really, in order mm -hmm. to come together and have a place to join arms in supporting and defending the shield that religious freedom is supposed to be. Well, it's it's really a great uh, frame for it, and and religious freedom shouldn't be owned by a political party, and certainly shouldn't be owned by a political movement. It really should be owned by all. There there are times, Rachel, and I don't know how, I don't know if you want to comment on the political situation we have, but it feels like there's times where the uh, conservative movements have taken the phrase religious freedom from other people and have said it's ours not yours 
And there are times where the progressive side of political movements have been willing to give it away at garage sale pricing. Yes. Like we don't so, care, just take it. We don't talk about religion might exist, but we don't recognize it as an organizing principle in, in the United States, you know, short of certain voter mobilization efforts. So there's been this thing that's happened where if you're progressive in politics and a Democrat voting person, it's very hard to find a handhold where your religious identity can be engaged. And if you're conservative, it's sort of forced on you out of things and they're like proselytizing conservative people into religious narratives. And it feels like both of those are, are errors, right? There's an overreach on behalf of conservatives and there's a giving away on behalf of progressives. And neither of those treats this basic claim of the American narrative that religion is free, uh, yeah. free from and free of. And, for, and free for. So do you have any thoughts about that? Like what, I mean, obviously the summit is a big, big piece of that, but, but what else, what else is going on here? I do. I, I, the favorite, my favorite part of our name is Americans United because during such divided times, mm -hmm. the thing that really can unite all of us because it supports all of us in the end is church state separation. It brings us together. It protects yeah. all of us equally and ensures that we're all able to believe as we choose or not believe and basically live as we choose, free mm -hmm. from other people's religious dictates, which is so important. So I, I do agree. I think, you know, on, on the progressive side, um, there is an, there has been an undervaluing of religion or, you know, and I know that there's a lot of people with religious trauma and I really get that. I'm going to have to say coming from reform Judaism, I do not have that. And I'm very lucky. Um, but, you know, but religion, I think can play such an important role. It's not going anywhere. I mean, I know that yeah. we have 40% of millennials who are unaffiliated and, you know, half of those maybe don't believe in God and, great, like religious diversity, you know, what is religious freedom? It's your right to believe anything you choose to change your right. religious beliefs, to concoct your own spiritual brew. I mean, it's awesome, right? And, and America's right. really cool that way. But religion yeah. does so much good, right? So I'll say from the progressive side, you know, it provides structure in people's lives, it provides community, it existentially helps us keep on going and being human mm -hmm. is hard. Many of us, not all of us, you know, but many of us. And, you know, I will also say that it's fine that not all of us want to be religious, you know, and that it's really, it's a shame. Um, it's to kind of, even it's, it was so interesting, you know, even in Oklahoma, if we can talk about that for a minute, mm -hmm. where you know, we're facing this really crazy situation where a virtual school board with the government may give taxpayer dollars for the first time ever to a religious charter school. The archdiocese there has, St. Isidore's has applied for this application to be a charter school, which is, you know, by state law and, you know, all across America, a public school, you know, and it's such a crazy situation, but the former AG in Oklahoma had really supported that, you know, and had issued some guidance saying, he thought that St. Isidore should be given taxpayer dollars. Um, the new AG came in and on the one end, it was so great and basically took back 
that guidance. So thank mm-hmm. you. That's really important. And on the other hand, it was so interesting to look at the just the verbiage of what the new AG said, because he said, you know, basically, unfortunately, you know, there are there are these religious beliefs that we'd never that I think we can all agree we'd never want to fund. <laughs> um, and that was the way he justified <laughs> not opening the door to St. Isidore's. And I understand how that's politically compelling and I appreciate his ultimate stance. But this is America. And in America, we've got to treat everybody's decision to be religious in whatever way or to be non-religious the same. And the left and the right, again, just to come back to where I started, should be joining together. Like this is one of the rare places. Let's be strange bedfellows. You know, Americans United was majority Republican in the 1980s. Yeah, yeah. Have Republicans. We still have Republicans who support us, but obviously nowhere near a majority anymore. But we should be as American as apple pie and vanilla ice cream. Yeah, that's right. what we it, should it, be. it almost um, shouldn't almost shouldn't need to exist, right? Like there, the, the the truthfulness and whatever it started nineteen forty eight or when when, yeah. when did it start nineteen forty eight? Like there shouldn't have been a need for it then. There really shouldn't be a need for it now. There's a lot of really good things that exist in the world that you think. You know, if, if things were the way they should be, we might not need to have this, right? That right. that would be that would be better. And look, there there are um places like Oklahoma are interesting because the majority, the great majority, I think it might be 90 plus percent of the legislature in Georgia identifies personally in a religious narrative. So there is a way that religious people tend to think that just, as you were saying earlier, just kind of normalizes to the point that you can't even, um, separate out one, one issue, you know, from, from the other. And it, it just makes, makes things difficult for people to recognize what's going on when the norm for their own experience is, well, Christianity is not a bad thing. People aren't saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. That's the point. The government shouldn't have an opinion about it being a good thing or a or a bad thing. Can, can I just ask you, do you have any opinion about chaplains in the in Senate and in in official hearings? I, it drives me crazy. I've tried to work for years to raise a voice about that and to have that stop. Um, some of us, when we were watching the selection of the House committee on uh, you know the the Speaker of the House and so on, got an inside look at what was going on. Oftentimes, you know, when there's a tragedy that happens, we'll see clips of the Senate chaplain giving comments about issues and then opening in prayer. I am just super bothered by the fact that we're opening legislative sessions with prayer of any kind, but especially because it tends, they almost always are, the the formal chaplains are people from my my tradition and it sort of perks up my ears and makes me really concerned. Um, do you or does, does Americans United have a position on that? Yeah. And is there anything yeah. going Actually, on about this? Yes, Doug. Great. Um, great question. Shortly after I started, um, I wrote a column in the Washington Post, and you can Google it. It's called, Why Are There Chaplains in Congress Anyway? Um, and, you know, looked at that. I mean, look, the the founding fathers changed their position on it. At first, it was like, okay. And then, you know, it wasn't okay. Um, and from our perspective, in today's day and age, 
where you could literally practically throw a baseball to a house of worship of your choosing, right? That's by Congress. So you can certainly go and pray. I mean, there's just no access question. I mean, I think chaplains in the military are a separate question, you know, for that reason. But, you know, why on the taxpayer dime are we funding chaplains who, by the way, have all been Christian, right? Since our founding, every single one has been Christian, right? Where people have access to their house of worship in Washington, D.C. They just do. And where it is troubling, not just for the sake of the religious freedom of all taxpayers, but for religion to intermingle it with the government. Because ultimately, where strings are attached, where Congress is footing your bill, even as a chaplain, right? It influences religion in a way, inevitably, that the government never should. Yes. Any movement on this? Any any hope? I mean, I know it's I I know it's it's one of the. Yeah. I don't think so, Doug. And I think, look, I mean, I think that's the. It's a it's a difficult one to win on because. You know, I think people are looking for grounding, you know, in those moments, I think even in Congress and even where we're not getting along with each other and, you know, we've never been more divided, sort of rising above it is something that people long for. And and I yeah, think that I there's you. a way to do that without being religious, but everyone's used to using religion to get us there, right? So I don't think that is first up on our list yeah, of what we yeah, tackle. I think you're right. <laughs> I think you're right. And and probably I yeah, I don't know. There's there's days where I think maybe in the in the scheme of things that's probably not the most important. And then there's times where I think I, I don't know, it's the most obvious. We should just do something about that. You know, um I, I know we only have a minute left, but I, I heard the mayor of Louisville, Kentucky, uh, on a news program yesterday saying one of the things they're trying to do in Louisville is to stop the resale of guns that are confiscated in crimes because currently what happens is guns are used in a crime and then the city auctions them for sale to use the money to fund the police force. So they're putting guns that were used as criminal uh, tools back out on the street. And he's like, that's one thing we could stop. We could stop the return of weapons that have been used in crime back to the flow. And and it was one of those realities that I thought like, okay, that really, that's not going to solve all the problems, but boy, that feels like really clear thing. You could do something about to make a real statement that you don't, you, you think that the, the money's probably not worth it and you could find money from somewhere else. That's kind of how I feel about these chaplains in senates and house and legislatures. Like, Let's find another way for people to be supported. <laughs> that's not, that's 100%. not, it just feels so obvious and simple and clear. And the fact that it's not obvious, simple and clear is a reminder to me. Yeah, not everybody sees this the way that, uh, the way that I do. And there's still a lot of work to do in sort of the concept of what, what, what are we up to? Which is why I'm so grateful for you and for your work and oh, glad our I, people get to hear about it. And I so appreciate that. And I actually thought, and maybe this would be a good thing, note for me to conclude on, Doug, that you were going to say to me, so that's one way we can make a difference when it comes to gun safety. How can we make a difference when it comes to church-state separation? So let me give a plug um, for, for a couple of things. Thing one is for religious leaders to use their voices to support church-state separation and to explain how important it is for religion and for religious freedom in this country. 
because our cause has been unfairly mislabeled as being anti-Christian and anti-religion, and we haven't adequately taken that on. So we need religious leaders to engage. Thing number two that we can do to help rectify church-state separation in this country is connect the dots between church-state separation and so many of the freedoms and rights that church-state separation supports and undergirds. So to make the connection between church-state separation and public schools, to make the connection between church-state separation, even in religious freedom, that's a connection that not everyone has made. And helping make ensure equality for our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, et cetera. So connect the dots. Number three is join Americans United. Because we are the only nonpartisan nonprofit that is a non-religious nonprofit, right? We're secular, that is dedicated 24-7 to protecting the separation of religion and government. And mm. you can find us on au.org. You get an awesome magazine in the mail, how old fashioned, oh. every month with a column written, a personal column written by yours truly. And it's wow. a really, Rob Austin who publishes the magazine is so erudite and amazing. He's written four books and you will be so happy with that magazine and be kept up to speed on how you can take action. Great. So please join us. Well, I hope, I hope people do it and I hope they uh, sign up, get the magazine. I mean, I'll say, like me, become a member. Uh, it's a good thing to do. And join us for the Summit on Religious Freedom just coming up here next week on the 22nd through the 24th of April, which is a weekend, by the way. So people who are not checking their calendars yet, um, it, it is a weekend, so you can spend some weekend time if that works better for your schedule. Rachel, and that's thank you for all surf, your good... TheSurf.org. TheSurf, V-S-R-F.org. That's how you can join us. Yeah, thank yes. you, Doug. It was great talking to you. Thank you for having me on. Great. We'll see you next week. I will. See you soon. Okay.